0: The Civil War ended in spring 1865 but for Confederate veterans and their families the consequences persisted far longer as they began to pick up the pieces of their civilian lives in the devastated South. In his new book Jeffrey McClurkin assesses the wide-ranging effects of the war on Confederate veteran families in Southside Virginia. Coming to terms with post-war reality on an individual level meant reconstructing the households that soldiers had left and seeking jobs and financial assistance. It also meant that state became involved in providing replacement limbs for amputees, pensions and homes for old soldiers and widows. These changes would influence the shape of Southern society for generations to come. And indeed we're here today in this particular spot in Richmond because of what came before because what used to occupy this block from the Virginia Museum over to the VHS in the early 20th century was the home for uh, Confederate veterans called the R.E. Lee Camp. Today we're fortunate to have with us Dr. McClurkin, who is Associate Professor in the Department of History and American Studies at the University of Mary Washington. He's Chairman of the Department there, and he's active in the sesquicentennial efforts to commemorate the Civil War in the Fredericksburg area. He earned his Ph.D. at Johns Hopkins University and is an expert on 19th century America, especially the American South. So please welcome Jeffrey McClurkin who will speak to us about his book, Take Care of the Living, Reconstructing Confederate Veteran Families in Virginia.
1: Good afternoon. Thank you. All right, just like one of my classes. Come on, you can speak. Uh, let me begin by by thanking uh, Nelson and and uh, Francis Pollard and Lee Shepard and 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 the rest of the staff at the Virginia Historical Society. Uh, I, this is a book that um, um, very much began in in the library here and in some other places here in town, the Library of Virginia, uh, among others. Um, so I appreciate all of their help uh, in, in the early stages of this project, and, and I certainly uh, uh, am honored uh, by the invitation to give one of the famous uh, Banner Lectures. Uh, thanks to all of you for giving up your lunch hour to listen to an academic talk about something he spent a decade working on. Um, I, hope, I hope at the end you think it's as worth it as I do, um, or, well, maybe not that much, but <laughs> I hope you don't feel like you've wasted your time. Uh, I thought I'd start by talking a little bit about how I began this project uh, and a little bit about how it ended up taking the shape that it did. Um, This project began a little over a decade ago with actually a single statistic, uh, a statistic about the percentage of white male deaths in the Civil War uh, in the South. Um, and, And there are actually lots of statistics and lots of debate about statistics related to the Civil War, but this is one for which there's, uh, there's some, uh, some pretty good evidence, uh, and that is that nearly 20% of white men of military age, and military age here is defined 13 to 43, um, nearly 20% of white men of military age in the South die over the course of the Civil War. Um, and so I began to think about what that meant, right? What would that have meant for surviving Southern white families? What would that have meant for the South as a whole, Uh, And so while much of the scholarship of of the Postbellum South rightly explores the massive impact of emancipation, uh, looks at the political consequences, I I wanted to explore a parallel process that was going on during and after the conflict, namely uh, the attempt to deal with the human consequences of war, Uh, death, but also woundings, amputations, illnesses, Uh, and frankly what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder. I increasingly came to believe that veteran families should be the focus of a study and that that focus uh, should be a long-term study. It shouldn't just look in the few years after the war. Uh, 19th century American families were the basic economic and social unit of the day, and they continued on even when one of their members died. Uh, So I wanted to explore how they continued on and what that process looked like. Uh, Early in my research, I ran across uh, the following words in a speech, um, and you should recognize them because they became the title of the book. Um, A a minister, a Baptist minister in Danville in 1875, a gentleman by the name of J.E.L. Holmes, said, It is well to raise monuments to the dead, but I think it is far better to take care of the living. Right? and that was, a, that was a, a, a notion that particularly resonated with me and I suspected that Holmes was not alone uh, in, in such sentiments and so I, be, I wanted to look further and further uh, at those who took care of the living. Right? Uh, I also determined that as much as possible I wanted to have a broad range of the socioeconomic spectrum of these veterans and their families. Uh, for reasons of sources and of interest I think historians have tended to focus on the elite, the wealthy, the most prominent I wanted, to get at the, I wanted to have the broadest range, uh, the broader picture, to find out about as many soldiers and their families as possible, regardless of economic level. Well, that's great, but then I had to decide where to go with that. Where was I going to go to assess the human impact of the Civil War? Well, I've always been fascinated, as many people are, with the Battle of Fredericksburg and with Pickett's Charge in particular uh, because of, of that that particular moment in time as a a symbolic and actual moment of massive wartime casualties. In other words, it's it's a moment, a particular moment where we can measure and look at the human impact of war uh, in in all of its uh, glory, and I use that in an ironic way. Uh, What I found when I began to look at the men who took part in more accurately the Pickett-Pettigrew-Trimble charge uh, in greater detail was that there were there are about 15,000 men, and I didn't really think I could track all of them down. Uh, that seemed like a little too much uh, for one project. Um, and it turns out that they, were, they came from a few particular areas. In fact, there were 16 companies of men from Pittsylvania County and Danville, Virginia, They made up over 10% of General George Pickett's division, the most men from any single area in Virginia that took part in that unsuccessful, albeit storied, charge. So I began to focus my attention on Pittsylvania County and Danville. I decided to focus in a little more closely on that community. Now, the fact that it was the last capital, that Danville itself is the last capital of the Confederacy, added yet another symbolic layer. Right, a, a, a symbolic role as representative of the Confederate soldier and Confederate veteran. It turns out that four-fifths of the county's men of military age served in frontline Confederate Union units. One-fourth of them died in service. Nearly half survived the war, but only after being wounded, falling seriously ill, or being imprisoned in Union jails. Now, those numbers, for the most part, those statistics match up with those statistics roughly, with those uh, statistics available for Confederate areas and, and for soldiers as a whole. So it didn't strike me as an area that was particularly atypical either. And as I began to look a little more closely at the sources available, I decided to focus, in fact, on the soldiers from Pennsylvania County and Danville. Now, when you choose to focus a project like this in this way, uh, there are advantages and disadvantages to it. The advantages are that concentration on a particular county provides both precision and some continuity in terms of the kinds of sources that you're able to find. So it's possible to find people in newspapers and then again in the census and then again in letters and then again in military records. And it becomes possible then to, to, to actually build a broad picture of a community during and after the war. Is it typical? Well, typicality is a bit of a, it's a, bit of a uh, um, red herring. No area is truly representative of any other area, but there are things that make Pennsylvania and Danville uh, like many other southern places. The area's high casualties and lack of property damage, the fact is the Union doesn't don't arrive until, uh, in Danville until after the war is over, uh, allows a focus on changes brought about by injuries to people rather than by injuries to property. And although here in Virginia we tend to think of the Union just sort of encamping and trampling everything here for the entire course of the war, the fact is for most of the South, uh, they did not actually see Union uh, troops for for extended periods of time. And so in that sense, again, uh, we have a a commonality with, with this area and some other areas. All right. Now, if I was going to get at everyone, I realized I needed to create a massive database of all of the men and their families. Now, I had some experience with this. I worked on Ed Ayers' Valley of the Shadow Project at UVA in the mid-'90s. Um, so I'd, I'd worked with large quantities of data before. Um, most historians are scared of data, but there are a few of us who you know, don't mind the occasional number or two. Um, and one of the things that I, I began to do was to build a, a database of, a basis, beginning with a list of all the soldiers from the city and the county right? Simple enough. Uh, and one of the things that makes that job a little easier is that like other Civil War units, Pennsylvania and, and Danville's men uh, were recruited into companies with other men from their area. In other words, they fought with, uh, with their neighbors for the most part. Now, one of the results is they spend a great deal of time together and they spend a great deal of time talking to each other and they spend a great deal of time bonding. But the advantage for me was that most of the men who fought from an area could be studied as one group, could be found and tracked down. Although there were men in, from Pennsylvania and Danville who were not in these particular regiments, the fact is that, that most of them, the vast majority of them were, and so it provided another way at getting at their experiences. Ultimately, the soldiers database that I created compiled military service information available about the over 3,000 Confederate soldiers from Pennsylvania County in Danville, Virginia. So, okay, maybe not 15,000, but, but 3,000 is still a lot. I created a separate entry for each soldier using microfilmed Confederate service records and the unit rosters from relevant volumes of the Virginia Regimental History Series. The databases basically collected whatever potential information existed on them, often fairly scattered. It might be enlistment dates, it might be where they were from, their rank, uh, if they'd been injured, any kind of uh, comments about physical appearance, uh, battles they fought in, uh, illnesses they suffered, uh, if they'd been in, uh, in prisoner of war camps at all. Um, anything about discharge, death, um, desertion, anything, right? And so after some culling of duplicate and misspelled names, I ended up with um, about 3,400 residents who'd served in the military in some form and about uh, 3,300 who served in frontline units. And by that, I mean that they, in fact, had... um, I wanted to be careful to distinguish between those who had actually uh, seen some kind of combat during the war and those such as the Home Guard who were technically in the military but wouldn't have uh, experienced the same thing. Um, Now, having created the Soldiers Database allowed me to discuss wartime experiences of individual soldiers throughout the book, but it also allowed me to analyze the collective experiences of all county soldiers and, and of subgroups. I then went to the manuscript, uh, populations, the manuscript population census for the county for 1860 and 1870, and as you can see here, that meant uh, in 1860 that meant entering in 18,000 entries uh, with 20 data points each, um, and in 1870 36,000 entries uh, when we began to uh, when the, the census began to, to count uh, African Americans as well, um, and so um, as you can imagine, this took a little bit of time. Uh, I then linked the veteran family households in the databases together with the soldiers database. So I took these two massive databases and I linked them individually. I went and found each person uh, in each of these records and linked them together. So the soldiers family in 1860 and the soldiers family in 1870 was linked with their record and their experiences during the war. The process of doing this took me two full years. So I did for two years this is and, and and it was some of it was when I was in graduate school so i wasn't i wasn't working in any other way either um, so um but what it does is that it gives me, a, it, it, it provides a really strong foundation on which to build the book and the arguments that I make in the book. And it provides group data to match the individual stories that I wanted to tell. And I, you know, I think I've talked about the process enough. If people have questions about how, how I did it or more details about that, uh, you're welcome to, to ask me about it afterwards. But But uh, there were other sources as well, many other sources, uh, some of them traditional, pensions, military records, churches, church records, letters, um, some less traditional. Uh, I I, uh, mined extensively uh, mental institution records, uh, specifically the the Western State Hospital uh, in Stanton. Um, So using this array of sources, I asked how the war and its legacy affected Danville and Pennsylvania County's Confederate veteran families and how those families worked to deal with those consequences over the following decades. And so here's what I found. First, regarding the impact of the war on Confederate veteran families. Now, some of these aspects of impact are easily quantifiable during and immediately after the war. Military records provide some aggregate sense of the impact on the county soldiers. So, we know that one fourth of the area of the county soldiers died during the conflict. That's a that's a that's a cold stat that that contains a great deal more behind it, but but it's quantifiable, right? we know that another half of them suffered wounds, diseases, or imprisonment serious enough to have actually made it into the record. So we're not talking about a cold here, we're talking about something more substantive, we're not talking about a minor wound, we're talking about something significant. But what does that mean? It means that over 2,400 of the county's soldiers, a staggering 74 percent of the soldiers, experienced something during the war that either killed them, damaged them, or put them in a hospital or prison. Right? We can also quantify, to some extent, economic impact. Generally speaking, we know that during and after the war, veteran families experienced significant financial declines in real and personal property. We can tell that by comparing the 1860 and 1870 census and the veterans in that census versus the non-veterans. Right? Why do they have these declines? Well, many reasons. Emancipation, southern economic depressions, the temporary and or permanent loss of, of the labor of men who had gone off to war. But the thing is, all of that work I spent creating and linking the databases actually also allows me to ask some fairly specific questions about the impact of the war from 1860 to 1870. So, for example, I can separate out those soldiers who were injured, captured, or became ill during the war. And then, because those soldiers are linked to their census entry and to that of their families, I'm able to ask questions, such as, how would the wounding, illness, or capture of a soldier affect the economic status of his family from 1860 to 1870 compared with those families who were fortunate enough to have a soldier who was never hurt or never captured during the war? And I can do that simply by sorting veteran families based on the status of their soldiers. Now, sorry for the, the nastiness of the graphs, but see, I actually, I actually do like numbers. Um, um, and one of the things that, and, and I promise in the book it's, it's much nicer, um, and it's much more readable, but one of the things I wanted to just point out, and there's a lot of data here, and I don't have time to get into all of it, but, but, but the two red circles show the change in total wealth between 1860 and 1870 for those families who had somebody who served but then came back apparently healthy, right? And those who came back not healthy, Right? It's a pretty significant, a 10%, nearly 10% difference in uh, in wealth. But I can also, um, I, but I can also um, tell something else interesting, which is perhaps uh, obvious, um, but but perhaps not. Certainly, uh, we haven't done this quantifiably. We have some anecdotal evidence that yes, things were bad right uh, after the Civil War. Yes, economic times were hard. And yes, it was harder if if someone was hurt. But but what the, the what the two current circles demonstrate is that having someone, at least in the short term, between 1860 and 1870, having someone who came back who had been ill, wounded, or not healthy, was actually almost as financially damaging as having that person die. Right, um, and that's something we don't necessarily think about. It makes some sense when we when we when we think it through. But that's something that uh, we now have some quantifiable evidence for. And of course, the economic impact was was more than just the physical impact of wounding or the uh, impact of of illnesses on, on soldiers. The Southern economy was devastated. So we know that even a healthy veteran, such as David Harris Watson, was unable to pay his debts and found himself in debtor's court a number of times in the years after the war i bring up watson in part because watson's papers are located here at the virginia historical society lee Shepard many years ago brought them to my attention and they're particularly useful in getting at somebody who is not particularly well off but but clearly in the aftermath of the war was was okay in the in in the pre-war period but but financially even though he remains healthy uh... never seems to quite uh... Recover economically other aspects of the impact of the civil war are much harder to quantify including the emotional, spiritual, and psychological impact of war. Um, Yet there is evidence that it does exist that certainly reveals the difficulty of dealing with wartime problems, as well as the changes that came with the post-war world. It's clear that emotionally and psychologically, members of veteran families suffered from temporary wartime physical separations, from permanent losses of family and friends, and from tensions caused by economic woes or physical and or mental war damage. At a minimum, these changes place stress on Confederate veteran families. At worst, they left some of those families impoverished, dysfunctional, and in a few cases, put people in the care of a state mental institution. Asylum records from the wartime and the post-war period, even decades later, indicate the tip of the iceberg, of the massive psychological impact of the Civil War. I say iceberg because because the records of the state asylums represent many of the worst-case scenarios, right, uh, of the impact of the war, but they by no means come even close to being all of those affected mentally uh, by the war. Many of these consequences stretched on for decades. State records reveal the long-term impact of the war on these veteran families. Uh, Pension request applications reflect ongoing financial problems 20, 30, 40 years out. Uh, those same applications reflect uh, ongoing, exacerbated physical problems as these veterans aged. Now, for the most part, Pennsylvania County and Danville's veterans and their families tried to keep to a minimum the changes that the war and all of its consequences brought to their lives. Now, that first meant surviving, then rebuilding their families using a variety of strategies. Now, the institutions and people to which those those families turn for assistance in their attempt to prevent, minimize, or cope with the significant physical, economic, and emotional consequences of the war reveal to us a post-war world that was fraught with difficult choices. But that also leads us back to the other part of my goal for this book, to detail those places and institutions to which Confederate veteran families turn to for help. And what I found were resources that I began to think of as circles of assistance used by these families to rebuild themselves, to reconstruct their households. These are are methods of assistance that, that overlap to some extent in time and in function, but they start with the family, and they move gradually outward. Right? They start with the family trying to reconstruct itself, and then they go to the local community, and eventually they turn to the state. Um, now I don't have time in my talk today to go into detail on the options available to families during the war itself, uh, although that's something I do cover in the book. Um, so, I, but I but I do want to note one thing about that. What what is clear is that that. Confederate veteran families when they are still just Confederate soldiers families begin to work out some of these things. They begin to realize that that this is an event that goes beyond what had existed before and that the previously existing methods of dealing with social and, and economic crisis simply aren't going to be enough, right? And so they begin to think a little bit more broadly. All right. So I want to talk then about each each source of assistance with with what I see as the strengths and weaknesses of each option. Um, and we begin with families. <clears throat> and for each of these, I have a, I have a quote, which I think uh, sort of uh, highlights uh, in some ways the, the strengths or in some cases the weaknesses of these particular areas. So even though George couldn't spell in hopes uh, and didn't realize it was two words, uh, the, the, the passion in his letters, uh, in the letters ba- um, um, back and forth, are, are incredibly powerful. And, and what they reveal is that... Uh, Not surprisingly, home was the place to which soldiers wanted to return. Home was the place in which soldiers wanted to rebuild their lives. They wanted to do so nurtured within the strong economic and emotional support of their network, of familial households, uh, as well as their relatives and friends. Again, as I said, the basic unit of economic and emotional support in the 19th century was the family household, and that doesn't change. Arguably, it gets even stronger after the Civil War at its f- most fundamental level the rebuilding of veteran families required as one household head wrote three years after the war using every economy and working every way to get along All right? now working every way to get along Meant choosing one of, or more of a variety of strategies intended to, to maximize the economic and emotional benefits of those strategies. They included manipulating the family household structure. It might mean you move in with someone else, it might mean you take in boarders, it might mean you, you uh, literally change the, the configuration of your house, right? and that that those uh, decisions were particularly important and essential for soldiers' widows who were having to find their way in a post-war world that did not include a father and a husband. Uh, Other strategies included attempting to succeed in farming or other work in a post-war, post-slavery world by using the labor of all family members. Uh, Might include moving away from Pennsylvania County and Danville. Might include turning to friends and relatives outside the home. The problem with the strategy of relying on the family is the amount of stress that was placed on those families. The reconstruction of veteran families took place in this new postbellum world, a world full of obstacles to that rebuilding process, a world in which veteran families uh, worked with disadvantages due to their soldiers' time away from them, uh, due to uh, their wounds, their diseases, their deaths. Uh, as well as problems brought about simply by tensions between family members for any one of a variety of reasons. Just one example. Many women had to work outside the home to support their families in the aftermath of the Civil War, something that would have been largely avoided if possible, especially since in some of these post-war homes, women were actually making more money uh, than their husbands were, right? for a variety of reasons. Um, Those actions and the, the necessity of that Challenged the gender conventions of the day in ways that added further stress to these families in some ways it's amazing that veteran families were able to survive at all and in the end we know we know that relatives and friends failed to provide enough support for every veteran family every veteran family wasn't able to turn things around on their own or with that immediate network and the reason we know that is because they turned to other people for help they looked to other places Right. And so, veteran families in Pennsylvania County and Danville turned to long-established local support systems based on churches and elite community members when their familial resources and strategies failed to meet all of their emotional and or financial needs. So let's talk then about churches. now, I focused on the Baptist churches in, in Pennsylvania and Danville for a couple of reasons, partly because of the availability uh, and the high quality of their records and partly because of their numerical dominance in the county and to a lesser extent in the state during this time. Um, but the nature of aid from these Baptist churches varied depending on the needs of the people involved and on the resources and willingness of the congregation. For most of the people who took advantage of these churches and used them as, as resources, um, They are, in fact, emotional and spiritual supports, right? But for some of the desperately needy, and typically here we're talking about widows and orphans, churches offered limited financial assistance, even sometimes the occasional job. At times, Baptist churches even seemed eager to take on responsibilities such as education that had previously belonged to families. And yet, in doing so, these churches also served to reinforce a traditional family household structure, a traditional set of gender relations, and they do so through strict behavioral expectations for all members. And so, there are a number of veterans who are kicked out of these churches, or who choose to leave these churches. Um, sometimes just ahead of the uh, committee meeting that would have kicked them out of these churches uh, for things like dancing. Um, <clears throat> um, churches also reinforced the the traditional value family through through a paternalistic method of distributing financial aid provided to those families most damaged by the war. One example, one congregation, Kentuck Baptist, uh, set up an elaborate system of poor relief after the Civil War aimed at, in their words, satisfying the temporal wants of our most needy. The system identified needy members of the congregation, often women, and assign them a male church member who would collect money from the congregation and then dole it out as he saw fit to his wards. Uh, so he functions as a kind of surrogate husband or father, right, for that needy family. All right, ultimately it was though the financial support, limited though it was, although the financial support was incredibly important to those people who received it, it doesn't amount to very much, right? It's not enough by itself to meet the wants of the neediest families. And yet, still, the increases in church membership among men and women during and after the Civil War, Baptist churches nearly double in membership from 1860 to 1880, that, that, that increase in church membership indicates that some people found, many veteran families found, something useful or fulfilling in these religious communities. People also turned to their local elites, their rich neighbors, right? And so, Pennsylvania and Danville's upper class made up another part of the local support network for the community. Some of the southern elite of the area were absolutely devastated economically. Obviously, that's not surprising, but not all of them were. And southern men and women had a long tradition of looking to their rich neighbors for assistance in tough times. During and after the Civil War, elite men and women took on renewed importance as potential sources of cash or job opportunities. Now, while members of the upper class could and did refuse to give their assistance, many veteran families felt like they had little to lose by asking the wealthy for help, especially when other sources of aid had failed them. And the fact is that some of these petitions for help succeeded. Now, to get at this particular question, I looked at decades of appeals for help to, to William T. Sutherland. Right, And this, this letter is from one. I, if, I, if I could make up a Faulknerian name for someone, it would be Grief Lampkin. Um... <laughs> I did not make that up, but I, I and it's not the only reason I use the quote, but it, it's part of it. Um, so Sutherland uh, Sutherland is one of the county's richest men before the Civil War. He is the county's richest man in 1870, right? So he actually he does pretty well uh, through this whole Civil War thing. Um, he's a tobacco manufacturer, cotton mill founder, farm owner, railroad magnet, mayor. Uh, Civil War quartermaster, bank president, and politician. Um, And as such, he received lots of requests for help uh, from from people who wanted jobs, who wanted, I mean, he practically ran at least one business in every industry, um, in every possible aspect of the town. Um, So they asked him for jobs, but they also asked him for money, and they asked him for the use of his influence on their behalf. And many of these requests come from people who are in dire need. So veteran William Baugh, wounded at Gettysburg at the Battle of Seven Days, explained that he needed Sutherland's help getting a job uh, working the Danville toll bridge because, quote, "I am disabled and must go at something besides hard labor." And there are many other of these appeals, uh, many equally heart-wrenching, uh, some unbelievably petty. Um, But but what we find when we look collectively at these petitions, and especially those that Sutherland actually approved, is that a new category emerged, a new category of the worthy needy, right? Uh, People who are Confederate veterans or Confederate veteran family members, right? Evidence of this can be seen by the success rate of Confederate veteran petitions to William Sutherland. Over 82% of the successful appeals for help came from veteran families, as compared with 57% of veteran families within the overall applicant pool. Veteran families appealing to Sutherland for assistance were much more likely to get their aid than non-veterans. But again here, we have to be careful about about reading too much into this, right? Um, There were limits. Sutherland had to turn many people down. At one point, his aide, S.R. Neal, wrote back to a petitioner, He esteems you highly as a friend and would, if convenient, be gratified to comply with your request. But the present stringency of money matters is very great. And besides this fact, the major, this is what he liked to be called even 20, 30 years after the Civil War, the major has been for some time past loaning out and otherwise using large amounts of funds and has yet, as yet, been receiving nothing in return. Therefore, under these circumstances, it will not be convenient for him to accommodate you at present." almost a form letter. Um, I would say it's a form letter except I only found it on one letter. So, um, but, but you get a sense that there were limits. Uh, even the richest man couldn't give money to everybody. Uh, in fact, um, depending on how you interpret uh, some of his responses, um, he seems to have turned down nearly three-quarters of the people who requested aid. Um, add to that that many of his fellow elites in the South had been financially devastated by the war and emancipation, and we can see that the long-standing system of elite aid to needy veterans was severely strained, if not actually completely broken, by the post-war crises. And so we have to go even further out. One place that veteran families looked for help that they really hadn't looked so much before were the state's mental institutions. All right? All right. Specifically, Pennsylvania and Danville's veteran families looked to Western Lunatic Asylum, uh, later known as Western State Hospital in Stanton. Now, it's important to understand that although many Virginians seem to have suffered from what we would now consider to be mental illness, not everyone with apparent psychological problems would have gone to an insane asylum. Uh, Relatives usually attempted to care for family members with psychological disorders. uh, Only if their behavior was violent or if they wandered off or if their family couldn't take care of them would the mentally ill be put in the local jail initially and would commitment to an asylum be considered. But some of that changes after the Civil War. And the records of the Western Lunatic Asylum, including admissions books and medical charts, suggest that uh, the Civil War in its aftermath had a significant psychological effect on some veteran families. The antebellum support system for mental illness that had existed broke down under the trauma and stress of the conflict and its consequences. And veteran family members with mentally ill relatives turned to the state for help. Virginia's asylums became part of a post-war system in which the state took on responsibilities that families were unable to fulfill, caring for or even in their own words, curing, and I'll I'll come back to that in just a second, curing men and women uh, who were apparently affected by the war. Um, Of the 455 patients admitted to Western State between 1861 and 1868, 57 of them, over 10%, were admitted because of the war. That's actually what was written in the admissions book, cause of admission, the war, all right? Now, for most of these patients, their medical records directly link their mental problems to some kind of involvement in the Civil War. Now, that's not to say that the conflict actually caused these mental illnesses. Um, Even today, our understanding of the causes of mental problems remain, let's just say, less than perfect. Um, but from the point of view of the, of the patient's relatives and from the point of view of the doctors at Western State Hospital, uh, there were clear links between the Civil War and its consequences and the mental problems that these Virginians suffered during this period. Uh, these conditions included uh, military service, the death of loved ones, um, the results of the war in terms, of, in other words, the South had lost, uh, the post-war economic, social, political and racial conditions and though it's dangerous for us to impose modern diagnoses on people in the past it's hard not to see numerous connections between the symptoms of these men uh, and women and what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder including one veterans quote impatience fretfulness violence of temper and loss of mental power if you actually take the the dsm guide for uh... for for ptsd you can actually see quite a few similarities here and my comment before about the iceberg, certainly not everyone reacted to the war in quite the same way. Not everyone reacted to the war with such force that their friends, family, uh, and community decided they needed to be committed to an asylum. But the fact is there are a number of tales of depression and violence uh, among men and women across the South in the post-war period, which suggest that white Southerners paid a fairly significant psychological and emotional toll. Now, the goal of 19th century asylum of the 19th century asylum was to either cure or care for the mentally ill. And about 64% of the sample patient's mental conditions improved to the point the medical staff believed they could be discharged to their friends or or, or their family. Still, we shouldn't read too much into that. Uh, While sometimes a discharge meant a person could and did return to their life, cured, in some cases, merely meant that the person was no longer a danger to themselves or to others. Um, So trying to assess the value of of western lunatic asylum uh, just the name is is problematic today Um, but trying to assess the value of that for veteran families reveals a weakness in my strategy of using the family as a unit of analysis right because families consist of individuals and the ability to put a family member in the asylum uh, actually did not mean the same thing for all members of the family might be a great idea if you were not the person being sent to the asylum Uh, If you were the person being sent to the asylum, however, you might have very different feelings about it. Certainly for some patients, the strange surroundings, the limits on their freedom, the, quite frankly, horrific treatments with opium and various other concoctions. I just say opium and that doesn't sound so bad, but actually uh, the mixtures are pretty horrible. Opium and sulfuric acid is not something I think any of us want to try orally, uh, but they did. Um, So all of this meant that the time in the asylum could be fairly traumatic. And yet... They play, Western State Hospital and and other state asylums were part of a post-war system in which the state took on a much more heavy responsibility, responsibility for things that had traditionally been families' uh, responsibilities. Alright, so I'm almost out of time here, so I'm going to have to talk briefly about, about uh, the more traditional st- forms of state aid. I don't feel that guilty about it, in part because I wrote about it in the book and you could buy it and read it, but, um, but also because uh, this is one of the things I think that, that lots of people, lots of great scholars have, have begun to write on. Mostly, They've begun in the North, but there, there, there are quite a few people working on this in the South as well, so I, I think there's a lot to be said here. Let me just say that that through a series of post-war acts passed by Virginia's General Assembly, the state built on wartime relief efforts to provide financially for the soldiers and families who had most severely borne the burden of the Civil War. It begins in a limited way with aid for amputees, those survivors most physically harmed by the war. But over time, Virginia's legislators widen and widen and widen the group that could receive aid to include all veterans disabled by war women widowed by war, veterans disabled by age, and widows whose veteran husbands had died after the war. Eventually, Virginia provided homes for elderly and disabled veterans, veteran widows, and even veteran daughters. As Dr. Langford mentioned, we are very close here, right right, right on the spot of the Lee Camp Soldiers' Home and right, right down the street from the Home for Needy Confederate Women. Those things were here. And in doing so, the state of Virginia created, they not always call it this, but they created a social welfare system, right? It's a limited social welfare system, and it's a social welfare system where one had not existed before, and it's a social welfare system that was exclusive. It was exclusively for whites, right? Not all whites, veterans, but when you look at the percentage of veterans uh, among the white population, we're talking about quite a few people. All right. Um, the fact is that, that many veteran families took advantage of the state-based aid offered after the war. Um, I think it's worth emphasizing that in doing so, uh, that, that, that merely applying for what was veteran-specific assistance, the very process of applying for it, the process of being awarded it Responded to and reinforced the legacy of the Civil War as the central event in the lives of many of Virginia's veteran families, and this is especially true if you happen to spend the last days of your life in a home built for participants of the war. But we need to remember that that like the other sources of aid, most veterans and widows um, found that state benefits supplemented rather than replaced the networks of family and local support that I talked about earlier. Still. It may have been enough to keep them out of the poorhouse, and so the state's assistance was badly needed, avidly sought, and gratefully welcomed by veterans and their families. Let me conclude simply with with a story of, of five veterans. In 1861 and 1862, James Redd, William Dix, and Joseph Miller enlisted in the Confederate Army from Pittsylvania County in Danville, Virginia. So too did George and James, the husbands of Barsheba Adams and Jane Smith. By the end of the war, Smith and Adams' husbands were dead. Red had been wounded. Miller had lost his leg and spent a year as a prisoner of war. By 1870, Dix's family had lost 80% of their 1860 wealth, nearly $10,000. Beset with financial difficulties, Dix attempted suicide. So for these five soldiers and their families, it's pretty clear the Civil War had brought significant consequences. And yet none of the members of these veteran families passively accepted their lot. They each employed strategies intended to maintain or reconstruct their families during and after the conflict. During the war, Red appealed appealed for assistance to a member of the local elite, while Adams and Smith turned to their churches and families for emotional support. After the war, uh, Baptist churches provided the widows with further financial assistance. In the aftermath of his suicide attempt, William Dix uh, uh, William Dix's family sent him to the Western Lunatic Asylum, from which he returned 19 months later, apparently cured and not, in quotation marks, cured. Um, Joseph Miller turned to the state of Virginia for an artificial limb, as well as financial support, eventually in, gaining a pension in the last, year, last years of the 19th century. and In the first years of the 20th century, James Redd entered the Lee Camp Soldiers' Home, uh, a state-supported home for disabled and elderly Confederate veterans. Like thousands of Pennsylvania's veteran families, these men and women looked for ways to cope with the consequences of the Civil War that often transcended the structure of their families. Thank you very much. One right here already.
2: You mentioned that uh, they had uh, P.S. Uh, post traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. W- what, what if anything was done for these folks uh, unless they went to Western State?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, they wouldn't. Obviously, they wouldn't have described it as post traumatic stress disorder. They have a, a variety of names for uh, for, for it, but um, th- they don't really know what to do. Uh, one of the trends that we see during this time period is that. Um, is that there's an increase in the number of institutionalizations, right? So more and more people are being taken to state hospitals. So part of the growth, and, and I don't get too much into this um, in, in the book itself, but but part of the growth um, that we see for Western state is it comes out of the need to deal with the increasing number of people who are dealing with, with issues after the Civil War, right? Um, the, the treatments that they are involved in are not... Let's just say they don't mesh up with the current uh, method of treating uh, people. They, it was not unusual, for example, to rub someone raw um, and and then uh, topically apply various medicines uh, on their scalp. Um, um, the the oral mixture I talked about was sulfuric acid, iron oxide, and opium. Uh, they called it the red mixture. Um, I mean, just this is what they would give people. What that were that were upset, and they, you know, you can read in the records like got more upset. I'm not surprised. Um, <clears throat> um, so, unfortunately, it's a, you know I'm I'm joking here a little bit because it's a it's a pretty sad story. They didn't really know what to do. Um, Eric, Eric Dean um, has written a book called "Shook Over Hell," which looks at the at the northern side of this as well. Um, and and um, they they were they were sort of baffled by what to do with it. Although the the union is particularly interested, the federal government is particularly interested in trying to figure out what to do. They just they just really bad at it. So.
3: I want you to know I'm very impressed with your your study. Oh, thanks. The methodology and how you're able to quantify. Right. (laughs) I have a a question that I'm sure you're pondering. It looks like this is almost a career you could build around (laughs) a study like this. How would you project your findings of this study, which is, as you've said, about a specific geographic area So to maybe to other areas in the South and the North. Right. I'd be interested in your response. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That sounds like a career. Yeah.
1: Um, I don't know. I guess I should teach at a place that has graduate students. Um, (laughs) uh, No, I mean, this is uh, incredibly time consuming. One of the things that's changing that, though, when I began this study, I I had to enter all of it more or less myself. that's that's begun to change with things like Ancestry.com and and some of these places that some of these uh, um, uh, organizations oriented around um, genealogy um, these some some big name companies who have really begun to um, make these um, sources available now the problem is getting access to it and 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 paying for these things and and proper credit for for sources and things like that but if if you could take if if you had all of that material entered in right if you had all, all of the census stuff already digitized, then, it's not a small thing, but then the big problem is the linking, right? And I spent a great deal of time doing that as well, but but it's possible to sort of uh, move further ahead on these projects and to begin to identify some of these things. Um, you know, in some ways, this is the kind of thing that lends itself well towards rather than one person working on a, a crowdsourced project, right, that, that lots of people could be working on it. You need someone to, to, sent, to, to set it up um, in a center and sort of vet some of the stuff. But uh, there's, there's actually some real possibilities there. I don't know that I'm that guy. <laughs> uh,
0: with the women having to uh, pick up and keep on keeping on, Did did that give any impetus? I think you alluded to it, impetus to the suffrage movement that
1: began to arise later. Uh, The short answer to that is no. Um, I think it it does in the north. Um, I don't think it does in the south. Um, In fact, there's a kind of backlash against um, many of these women. You know, there, there are people who have actually done... Looked at, at women's perspectives a lot in a lot more detail than I do in this book. Uh, Drew Faust is is one of them, um, and, and and her argument, and I tend to go along with her on that, is that that many of these southern women did not want to be working outside the home. They didn't see this as empowering. They saw this as as wrong. Um, and so, um, and so the so, as soon as they are able to stop doing that, they do. Um, no, in fact, that um, you know that the, the if if you look at the states. In, in 1920, just before the 19th Amendment is passed, the Women's Rights Amendment is passed. Um, the, the only solid block of states that that have not don't haven't already passed women's rights legislation is the Confederate South. Um, so,
3: I was just going to ask about the uh, financial uh, impact of the sure. war. Uh, How did inflation and deflation figure into your uh, financial figures?
1: Um, The 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 flip answer is they didn't, Um, in in the sense that um, I mean I I went and looked at the at the changing. um, 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 You can adjust for inflation in 1860 versus 1870, which is when I get most of my financial information from. It's the it's the personal property and the real estate property for the, uh, in the census. Um, you can adjust for that. Um, most of the statistics I'm using, though, are comparative statistics to other people. Um, and so um, the inflation rate was the same for, for both of them, right? So when I compare a lot, families who's, who have somebody come home alive and those who don't, they're, they're operating on the same um, they 're operating on the same uh, uh, continuum there, um, but even if you adjust i mean if you, i did do some basic stats for the for the change as a whole and even if you adjust for inflation you 're talking about massive decline in uh, in the value of of these people 's land and their and their personal property
3: um, i 'd like to add a, a, a something extra to that question okay um, in that table you showed of the Diminution of, of um, resources of of the order of 85 percent. Right. What is the baseline for those families who did not lose a member, or is it already built in there?
1: Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's um, you can see they're starting the average total wealth average total wealth per family um, is is right here.
3: I meant for the non-veteran families, the ones who. Never oh, the
1: ones that aren't. Yeah, the ones that aren't here. Yeah, I don't have that stat up, um, but I. Yeah, I mean, th- th- what? Um, it's uh, table two point one in the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but my, I have a
3: very superficial sure. understanding of this, but, but just knowing the loss of of the value of the slaves would account for, some significant. Uh, a fraction yeah.
1: for all families. Yeah. What I did. Yeah. No. You're absolutely right. And that's why I actually linked the 1860 census and and all of those families to the slaveholding census in 1860 as well. And what you find is uh, is actually that um, that more slaveholders are veterans than than are not. Um, in fact, they, there's a higher percentage of slaveholders who serve. Um, 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 and so no. There's a corresponding percentage. I'm trying to remember tables from five years ago when I wrote them. Um, yes, yeah, so, th- so there are more. There are slightly more. There are slightly more um, s- veteran slaveholders. There's a slightly higher percentage of slaveholders who are soldiers um, than in the population. So it's something like 80 percent of slaveholder families send somebody off, um, and so. Um, remind me how, what your question was I'm, I'm, trying, <laughs> I'm trying to get a sense I
3: mean these are devastating numbers you're sure. showing here but I'm trying to get a sense of how much of it is the value of slaves
1: yeah there's no question that, some of it, that a lot of it is the value of slaves
3: um, and how much is it just devastating for those numbers as compared to families who didn't lose anyone physically to the war um,
1: I don't I don't know that I that I separated it off that way, although I could go back to the databases and figure that out. Um that's a that's a good question, but I, it's not one that I asked. Um it's one that I could ask.
2: I have actually two questions. Uh one is like another financial type question. Okay. Uh, and, uh, in I, in my own family it's a great grandfather or uncle who uh, died uh, in service of the confederacy in the first year of the war and then in the following year his father made a claim for salaries that he had not received right and i guess he later got that but i'm wondering i'm supposing there were all sorts of things like right. that and perhaps pensions and other right. things and so at the conclusion of the war, was all of that like lost? Or, and then the Confederate money, was that all become worth nothing? That's my first question. And then the second is that uh, I happened to attend the uh, memorial service next door at the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And one of the things that they made a big presentation about was that how the, it was the veteran soldiers of the Confederacy who were so instrumental in reconstructing the society and putting things back together, and even, you know, making the society all make more sense? I didn't hear you talk about anything like that. Yeah. So, was your research? Uh, uh, Would it? What? What did your research reflect on that subject?
1: Well, the second question's really loaded, so I'm going to take the first one first. <laughs> um, no. Um, I, the the if. If you asked for money from the Confederate government and got some uh, at any point that would have been pretty impressive um, um, there is some provision there is a there is some provision to, to, to give people whose husbands and, and family members die some back wages um, but it would have been paid in Confederate currency which which basically ceases to have any value at the end of the war um, you know, in terms of, um, and they really don't have, by the way, a pension system. The Union has a pension system uh, set up by 1862 for people who have died and for, for the wounded, right? There is no equivalent pension system in, in the Confederacy. I just couldn't even begin to think about affording it. Um, the second question, I, I very intentionally, this is, not, this is not a project about the memory of the Civil War, right? Um, you know, there are people who have done some terrific studies on that, um, Karen Cox is one of them, uh, but there are many others. Um, I, I, I was particularly interested in, well, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm going I'm to retreat to Reverend Holmes, right? Uh, let's let's not study the monuments to the dead. Let's take care of the living, right? And and, and I, my sense is that there were that, that while the, the the memory of the war is something that um, is something that that meant a lot to a, to a number of people. Um, that that surviving day to day for decades after the war was more important, and that's sort of the that's sort of the approach that I took in the book that that that's what I wanted to focus on i I cite in you know I give, I give credit to those people who have written on these things and have talked about some of the things that, that the daughters of the Confederacy were talking about but um, but that's that's not what this book is about so. uh
3: you mentioned that okay. this used to be the grounds of a old folks home for the desiccated confederate soldiers <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at a, a, a brochure now that mentions the confederate war memorial chapel that was built by those people and it's open to the public right over here on Grove Avenue
1: it's, Nelson is that right around the right across the way Yeah, yeah. There's, this, is a, this is a site with lots of history and, and I'm not just saying that because Nelson told me to <laughs> <laughs> One, okay last question
2: Hey, my question is, uh, did you find any at all uh, in these areas that did any kind of business with northerners or sold their farms to northerners uh, or perhaps an, uh, moved north or entered into business like, with northerners in right. order to support themselves and their families?
1: Yeah, um, You know, the thing about studying uh, Pittsylvania and Danville is there aren't a whole lot of northerners there. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, that's not entirely true. When the cotton mills open up, then, then the North get really interested, but that's, that's not really to the 1880s and 1890s. Um, uh, and then you begin to see some outside, outside investment, but, but mostly because they're, they're concerned. Uh, it's northern cotton mills concerned about the competition and, and wanting to, to diversify their investment. the, the in answer to your question, where most people go if they leave, and again, it's hard to track them all down, but where most people go when they leave is to Texas, Um, There are a few that go to Alabama, um, but but most of them end up in Texas. Um, But there aren't very many. I mean, one of the things that's remarkable about about doing this kind of study is you can study persistence, right? Um, And, you know, if you look at other community studies that study persistence over a decade or so, um, a decade or two decades is, it's it's actually, if you find two-thirds of the same people living in an area ten years later, that's actually really surprising um, in the 19th century. Um, And it's something like 75% of people uh, in 1860 are still there in 1870. Um, So there's not actually very much, um, uh, not anywhere near as much um, uh, movement or people leaving. Uh, We know that people do leave. Most of them, I should say, the the place that they most go to is other places in Virginia, right? And then if they leave the state, they're most likely to go to Texas. I, I, I don't, maybe one or two people who end up truly in the north. There's a soldier who ends up in Baltimore. Um, He's a minister there for a number of years, but I lived in Baltimore. (laughs) It's it's still in many ways the south. (laughs) Um, So certainly he seemed to think it was. So all right. Thanks. Appreciate your time. Okay. Okay. Thanks.